Hi, and welcome to episode 20 of that podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Bo. And how are we doing this week, Bo? Oh, we're doing all right. It's been a been a pretty busy week actually. I'm I'm in Milwaukee right now. It's been a it's been a little while since we've recorded while I'm out of town, but uh this week we we sort of hit it, so. Yeah, let's hope the uh the connection holds up. You're a little bit fuzzy there in the video, uh but it seems quite stable at least audio-wise, so uh let's hope yeah, it. Yeah, uh... I I actually uh figured out how to decrease the video quality. I think that was one of the tricks we found in one of the last episodes yeah. while we were recording afterwards. Um, I looked at it a little more carefully and it, it's not really obvious that if you click the adjust bandwidth thing, it, it just looks like a cell phone signal strength. So I just thought it meant I had low bandwidth, but <laughs> it actually lets you change it. So, uh, it, it's been a little, it's been a little easier for me to do these weird things in, in, in odd places with weird bandwidth restrictions. Now that I know I can manually turn it off. Yeah. So, uh, our latest episode went out yes uh, this morning, didn't it? Um, our continuous continuous deployment now for the website mm-hmm. including the uh the audio uh was successful and we've published our latest episode uh, i just wanted to mention something about that um so we recorded probably about nearly two hours of audio for that show or that episode and um we had a bit of a problem with one of the audio tracks about about halfway through um our guest taylor's track started well we could hear static over hangouts and I was going to say something, but I decided not to because I figured it would be Hangouts causing the issue. But it turns out that it was actually happening at the source. We don't Taylor still doesn't know what actually happened. But so for the last hour, every time uh, Taylor said anything, there was this horrible static and crackling over his voice, and um, it was pretty pretty beyond my skills uh, to clean up anything. Uh, I can deal with that sort of background noise. That's really easy to do with the tools I have, but. This was a bit more difficult, so I actually looked to um, to Odesk, or which is well, formerly Odesk. It's now called what was it Upwork? Yeah, Upwork. Upwork, yeah. And then a chap in Belarus uh, offered to do it for us, and he did an amazing job. I mean, you can definitely tell when you get there's a point. Thankfully, there's a gap of about ten minutes. Why? Oh, no, not quite ten minutes. About five minutes where Taylor doesn't say anything, and at some point during that gap, it switches from the good audio to the cleaned up audio. Uh, so I don't think you can tell that much, but um, you can definitely tell, but it saved us a lot of headaches and having to re-record or anything. Uh, the guy was, um, you can see him on Twitter, he's T underscore Trider on Twitter. Uh, he does all kinds of sound engineering and he uh, makes electronic music and stuff. So just wanted to give him a little shout out for uh, helping us uh, uh, out, of a, out of a tough situation there. So that was kind of cool. Excellent. Yeah, uh, you, you sent over a little sample of it, and I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> you, you, I think you took like a little thirty-second chunk out of it and put it up on Dropbox, and like, yeah. So, guess whose audio didn't work very well? Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm super happy that you were able to find someone to help out. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, that's actually the audio, the sample that I I posted on Upwork to sort of mm. uh, get an idea for who might be able to help us out. I think I. I think he was the fourth person to get back to me, and in his he did it, the the sample he sent me back was like leaps and bounds ahead of what the other people had sent back. Hmm. Uh, so it was a no brainer cool. to uh, to go with him. And he, I mean, he I think it cost me like twenty six dollars or something. So it's you know it's it cost absolutely nothing. It was quick. It took him about an hour and twenty minutes. He said, uh, so everyone was happy. I think so. Cool. Awesome. 
Yeah. And yeah. So, go ahead. No, go on. You carry on. Yeah. So the uh, the uh, this episode was the first. I think it's the first one, or maybe the second one that we've launched with the continuous delivery sort of sort of thing. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, one of the things that I've been trying to do. Uh, I think I mentioned on the last episode that I wanted to get that podcast up with a, uh, with a uh, security certificate was so that we could have an inline player on Twitter. So that that's another big thing that, that we have added to our technical stack right now is if you share an episode on Twitter, uh, people can actually play it inline in, inside the browser, which is pretty awesome. Um, we, there were a couple of hiccups with that. Uh, it's our, our hosting company, Media uh, uh, Signalleaf, um, did some weird things with the the uh, player URL or the actual MP3 URL, where you could pass it uh, an HTTPS URL, and for some reason behind the scenes it was translating it and redirecting you to the non-HTTPS version of the URL. Uh, so that gave us some some problems initially because everything had to be uh, HTTPS. If the little sec- uh, security banner went from green to yellow with mixed content any time during the experience. Twitter rejects it, so right. uh, we had to work with Derek Bailey a little bit on that, and he was pretty awesome. Uh, I think we we mentioned it maybe a month or so ago that it was an issue when I first started looking into it, um, but uh, he he hadn't been able to take a look at it. But as soon as I brought it up again, he he had it fixed in I want to say less than a day. Like he just worked on it and, and banged it out. So there was some reverse proxy issue or something on Heroku that whatever was happening, just in certain circumstances, the HTTPS URLs were getting redirected to the non-HTTPS. And mm. I have no idea what the code was, but he fixed it. He seemed to figure out what the problem was. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, the, the other thing I was trying to do was to get the same sort of experience on Facebook. And we don't have as many Facebook likes as we do Twitter followers. So it's probably not a huge issue, but I just figured it would be pretty easy to to add it. And um, turns out the security stuff is kind of complicated. I, mean, I think you mentioned that the the first pass of the Twitter player card was completely open. Anyone could put anything into the the different text fields that they wanted to just by tweaking the query strings. Um, and Facebook's is sort of similar. In well, it's, it's not similar, but the only way that I could really get any of the off the shelf. Uh, flash players to work would be that style where you just pass in a url Mm. uh, via the query string and i don't know i I thought that i thought that flash was pretty easy to do these days and i I really felt like given how much time it took me to build the html5 player and especially given the fact that uh you know the the template was there the spec was there was really easy it was just i needed a flash person to just do it for me um i thought it would be pretty easy to find someone someone on upwork and I didn't really have the same experience you did. I had, I don't know. I I think it's a, I think, so probably a supply and demand thing. Um, yeah. Because there definitely, in I imagine there is a little demand for them, or mm. not as much demand as there once was for Flash developers. As such, people probably moved on because in our industry, when you know, the, when. When your technology becomes more obsolete, then you move on to other technologies. Uh, yeah. The people who get left behind are probably the real experts, and they're probably actually getting very well paid at the places that can't get rid of Flash so easily, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Rather than hanging around looking for, you know, a few hours worth of work on a freelance project on uh, Upwork. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just speculating there. Yeah. I And, you know, part of me was feeling a little, little like I was on the other side of the equation where I'm thinking this thing is going to be super simple and 
you know, I don't really know how much work goes into building an audio player, but there's like tutorials online. I, f- I mean, I really feel like I could probably even do it myself, but it would take me like four hours. And I really just wanted someone else to do it for me. And I figured they'd be able to do it in like an hour, maybe two. But all of the people who've come back to me have said it was going to take eight, anywhere from eight hours to two days. And I, it just doesn't seem like the project should require that much work. So um, so I don't know. I, I, I haven't really hired anyone from Odesk before directly, um, like like cold like this anyway. Like I've, I've worked with people over Odesk, but I've like known them personally. Um, so I don't know. I, I was hoping it was going to be like one of those Odesk experiences like you had or Upwork experience like you had. But so far, I haven't done it. So we we just uh, I think you talked me out of uh, really worrying about it too much, just because you know the podcast doesn't have that many followers on Facebook yet. So uh, I'm not sure that the the reward was there high enough for us to spend any more time on it. But but it was it was fun to walk through that whole process of coming up with the spec and trying Upwork to try to see who we could hire to do that. So it yeah. was kind of cool. Have you have you got a line uh, with uh, Derek? Because I could do, there's the silliest little bug that. That catches me every time uh, I upload a new episode. So, um, there, there's a when you upload a new episode, signal if there's a publish date, mm-hmm. and you can say you can choose publish now. It's a radio button, and all that does is set the publish date to now according to whatever time JavaScript says so. Mm-hmm. But of course, for me, that's um, six, five, six, several hours ahead of you in the states. Mm-hmm. So when I do publish now, it sets the publish time to the time in GMT. But I think the what the server side code considers to be publish time is Pacific time, or do you see what I mean? Yeah. So I'm saying publish um, now, and it submits the form set with what is effectively a date in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's not actually published. So I have to go actually, go back I and edit if- it. Yeah, I wonder if that's actually something that bit us last night. Because I, I launched the, the episode last night at like one thirty in the morning. And the very first thing I did was try the new new Twitter player. And it didn't work. And uh, the reason was that the episode wasn't published yet. Well, <laughs> I was, just... It, yeah, it was set to publish at 9.30 a.m. And I thought maybe you'd intentionally... Because we were going to launch it today. I thought maybe you intentionally set it to 9.30 a.m. But maybe, maybe that wasn't actually the case. Um, I did intentionally set it to sometime in the morning. Yeah, but, uh, okay. yeah, because we, it, I, I actually uploaded it yesterday and we were going to publish today. So, Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was something that I hadn't realized before, and it's probably good that we're talking about it, is that it's not just that it doesn't go out in the feed. It actually uh, blocks you from downloading the MP3 until yeah. it's published. So, um, so yeah, there, there's definitely, uh, you know, when I was talking about the player card stuff, there were a couple of people who jumped in to talk about podcasting techniques and you know technology stack stuff and um that, that you know this is one of the things that comes up is what what is your workflow and um yeah so it's just a workflow thing that i guess we have to work out and like like i said derek's been pretty responsive when i've tweeted him on twitter um i think i think signal leaf actually has a, a contact button so I've, i think i've written them once or twice just through there and it's just Derek that gets back to me. So, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, I mean, if you have actual issues like that, I would say just uh, either tweet him or uh, do the, do the contact form. He's been pretty responsive so far. Yeah, I will do it. I'll get around to it eventually. It's one of those things that only, up, only it bugs me once every two weeks at the most, uh, the, well, the least, yeah. I guess, or the most. So uh, I've not bothered following it up. Yeah. Oh, speaking of 
of things that bother you just every once in a while. Um, so we, we talked about, uh, you talked about Google Inbox a couple of episodes ago. And I yeah. was talking about how I was using Mailbox, which is now owned by Dropbox, I believe. Um, there's a bug in that that has been just slowly wearing me down. And it used to be something that happened maybe once every, I don't know, maybe like once a month. Uh, the, you, you do the swipe to, to swipe to archive or swipe to um, set the sleep time. So when it comes back and every once in a while that would get stuck so that you would swipe it, but then it wouldn't actually swipe. It would just leave the little icon on there. And the only way I could fix it was to restart it. You know, and when that happens once a month, that's not a big deal. Uh, but it's getting to the point now where I'm, I've been restarting mailbox maybe three or four times a day because these swipes get stuck and it's, it's really starting to get annoying. So I, uh, tweeted about it yesterday and within two minutes I had like three, three different people writing me back just in, with, just within my network that has the same problem. So it was, it's, uh, it's interesting when these things start to like, you start to realize, you know, this thing that's been annoying me annoys me may, way more regularly than it was in the past and just kind of sneaks up on you. So. So I don't know what to do about my mail client. I, I switched back to AirMailer, uh, which is another, uh, was probably the next best thing to Sparrow. Uh, Sparrow was really awesome back when it first came out, but it's, it's been slowly dying. And AirMailer has been pretty nice too, but then last night I noticed it was taking up 25% of my CPU for no reason that I could think of. <laughs> like, that's why I stopped using it. That's why I went to Mailbox. So I don't know why mail, uh, mail clients aren't a solved problem at this point. <laughs> it seems like you should have some longevity in a mail client. Like, you know, Eudora was around forever. Like, why, why are, I don't know. These, these new mail clients come out and they're super awesome, but they get bought by people and then they, they slowly die. Mm. Which I, th I think is a common problem in our industry with all sorts of really awesome software that, that if you're awesome enough, you get bought by Google or Apple and then, or maybe Microsoft. And then, you know, you just get sucked into their big, huge thing and no more good stuff comes from it. Yep. Um, yeah. So, uh, last piece of podcast news, uh, we're a year old now. We've, we've officially crossed our year marker. Um, uh, I, I celebrated at PHP tech, uh, for us, uh, sort of. So that was pretty fun. Uh, we launched at PHP tech last year. Yeah. Very remember, last, yeah. very last, uh, day of PHP tech. We, that was when we opened our doors. So yeah, it's been, it's been a cool year. It, it's been, uh, we weren't really sure what was going to happen. And we stuck to our, let's do at least 10 episodes and we're still going. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Happy with that. This is, this is episode 20 official, but it's our 22nd time recording, isn't it? Because we've mm -hmm. had a, a yep. couple of practices in or smaller episodes in between. So yeah, happy days. Yeah, indeed. So hopefully we'll be having this conversation again in a year around episode 40 or so, or maybe 50. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I was actually, I keep meaning to put a page up on the site to uh, detail some of the process that we do to record, because uh, it is quite interesting. I, the amount of times when I, I read other podcasts, how we record our gear page all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so I should do it, and I'm, I've just, I'm actually recording the show slightly differently again now as well. So I'm using a couple of pieces of software for my uh, MacBook, or specifically IO. Uh, not iOS, what's it called? Mac OS. Uh, Mac OS apps. And one's called Sand Soundflower, and the other one's called uh, Ladiocast, I think you pronounce it. Um, or Ladio, I don't know. 
But it, anyway, it allows me to route the sound around it to different places. So I have my the my microphone and the audio from that my computer is making channeled into a separate audio track. Or actually channeled into two audio tracks. One going to Audacity to record and one going to my headphones. So it means I can record uh, my voice directly from my microphone and I can record all of the audio from the Hangout as a backup in case, say, your recording fails. Uh, and it worked out quite nicely in the last um, last episode, so I'm uh, I'm going to stick with that for now. So it seems to, seems to work okay, and it just gives us a little bit more security. Uh, if your recording failed, then I'd have something at this end to use. Uh, if my recording failed, we'd be we'd be screwed. But <laughs> mm-hmm. at least we've got some redundancy. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. We, um, we actually talked a little bit about wanting to put a little more content on our website, so that would be a good good candidate for that, I think. So, um, I also added uh, newsletter signups to all over all over on our website. So uh, if anyone's not on our newsletter, uh, we'd love for you to join. Uh, we Make sure you get notified about upcoming episodes right away. Though I have to admit that I was pretty surprised last night at 12.30 when I clicked the button. Within five minutes, um, Overcast had picked up our new episode and started sending notifications to people. Which I, I don't know how often they're actually pinging RSS feeds. I, I assumed that the update cycle would be slower. Like maybe... 5, yeah. 10, 15, 20 minutes, something like that. Um, I don't know. It must be pretty quick. So I thought that was pretty pretty impressive. So I don't know how useful the newsletter will actually be for new episodes if you have an app like that. But anyway. Well, but yeah, but we do add a little bit of extra content into the, the newsletter. Yeah. Well, a commentary is what I'd, I'd usually call it, but yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Um, so yeah, I... Don't think we have anything else for podcast news. How's work been going lately? Um, I've been doing lots of little things this week, and I've had a couple of sort of really painful um, bugs to track down, and um, it's actually ended up being a couple of weird... Uh, one, I think one was a time zone issue, and one was a time sync issue. So I'll tell you about the time sync one first. Basically, what uh, we one of our payment processors they manage subscriptions for us, and they send us a, a webhook like a notification when that subscription uh, finishes. For example, now when it was finishing, I was updating our sort of local database of that subscription to say that the subscription ended at the date they said it ended. So. I'm getting a notification to say this subscription has expired and it expired at this date. So I was updating our database to say it, this subscription expired at this date. And then I use events to sort of um, change people's premium status based on on their subscriptions. So I actually have a flag against the user to say whether they're premium or not. It allows us to upgrade and, up, and downgrade people manually without them having to have a payment plan or something. So the problem was that the the servers for my payments provider were clearly, and I'm not talking like one or two seconds, but maybe 10 to 15 seconds ahead of our servers. Mm. So they were telling me that this subscription has expired, but they were telling me it has expired 10 seconds in the future. <laughs> so when my code went to examine 
the subscriptions to see if this person still deserved to be a premium member, it was seeing an abs- a subscription that was still actually valid right now this second and not downgrading them. If you see, it. does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and you know that took me ages to to uh, discover. If you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. And then I had another one just like it. Uh, so I don't know if, but I think that one might have been time zones and me not storing uh, date times correctly. I mean, I don't know about you, but the, I mean, there's all kinds of things you need to do to really, really store date times effectively. Yeah, uh, I, I don't bother too much. Uh, I mean, we're we our site is specifically for UK users, uh, so everything runs GMT. And uh, but even then, once you start interacting with third-party companies that do things like payment processing, then you know you still got to deal with it a little bit. So that's pretty much the kind of thing I've been doing this week. Nothing interesting at all. I've been chasing hard to track bugs mm. and fixing them. Yeah. That's all, literally all I can say about what I've done this week. <laughs> yeah. So one of the projects that I worked on, uh, I actually worked on it again about a month ago, but mostly last last fall, was heavily based on times. And the time zone issue was definitely a problem there. Partly because it, it to a certain degree, the UI was supposed to be time where time zone agnostic uh, because the times were meant to be interpreted in multiple time zones Uh, so it was um, it was actually for running tasks at specific times so the ui should present itself that uh, this task needs to be run by by an employee at 7 a.m right but 7 a.m whether you're like it was 7 a.m as as of that store's local time so um, that time really shouldn't have had a time zone associated with it but initially it had a time zone associated with it It was like a full date time and i think one of the refactorings that uh the the uh engineer in charge is going to be doing is eventually fixing all of those and making them so that they're basically just text strings in the database Mm. instead of actual date times because the the fact that those had a time zone associated with them made every other time calculation uh, way more complicated than it needed to be because <laughs> you know, yeah. now now there's a time zone. We have to do the time zone differences and then ca- recalculate it again against the time zone it should be in. Um, it, that, that was just a mess. So yeah, working with time, anytime you have to do that, I feel like it easily doubles or triples the amount of work you have to do to, to fix bugs and write write a lot of test code for it. So I, I don't envy yeah. you having to to track down something like that, especially if you're just off by like nine seconds. That's yeah. yeah that's and of course, <laughs> and of course, pain. it's happened. And of course, it was happening in a sort of a web web hook. This isn't an interactive thing where I'm, I can reproduce it by browsing around the website. It's mm-hmm. so the the payment provider posts a bunch of data to us. The uh, the actual endpoint that receives that literally just grabs the data and shoves it onto the queue. I had for a worker to deal with, so basically mm-hmm. ended up with adding a lot of login code, uh, putting it up, and then hoping it would happen a couple more times throughout the day, so I could actually, you know, look through the logs to see what might have happened. Yeah, uh, like I say, eventually I got there, but it was it was difficult. Yeah. Yeah, so f- for work on my side, um, I've been I've been super busy for the like the last six weeks, including all of the conference travel 
Um, I've been trying to shove in as much time as I could because most of, I think it was, I think it was most of May, most of April and most of May, I didn't have any work. So, um, yeah, I was working on clients and ended up landing a bunch of really great projects. <laughs> I, I ended up landing a bunch of really great projects, but, um, they just took some time to spin up. So they, they've spun up now as <laughs> <laughs> so I've been super busy with those, um, I uh I got my first gig through gun.io which was pretty awesome. Um it was a company out of Texas and they needed to integrate uh with a REST API, uh, not a REST a SOAP API uh for a shipping company to uh ship things to Canada a little better. And uh one of the cool things about that project was that they let me open source it. Uh so uh that's actually available for other people to check out. Uh they had a they had some interesting restrictions early on that after I uh, talked to them a little bit more. They kind of relaxed some of them. Uh, one one of them was that they wanted everything to be in one file, and mm-hmm. um, what they really wanted, what their what their their end goal was, that they just didn't want to have to require a bunch of files. So they they weren't planning on using Composer. They had a bunch of legacy applications that weren't Composer aware, weren't weren't using auto loading or anything like that. Um, so they they wanted to be able to load this this library by just requiring one file. So um, I talked to Paul Jones and uh, asked him if I could borrow uh, Aura's PSR4 autoloader. So I included that. So I, I solved that problem that way. I was still able to build this out in multiple classes if I wanted to, or in multiple files. Uh, so so it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of interesting challenges to try to, to work through. Um, mm. I felt like I over-abstracted it um, as far as like there was a, a, a client, then there was a, an API client, and then there was a... WSDL client or WSDL client, but it ended up making it really nice for testing. Uh, I was able to test everything really well, completely offline, to the point that um, I wasn't even able to access the SOAP endpoint for like two or three days. But by the time that was done, I had the client written, and all I had to do was actually get the proper credentials, and the, the API worked as advertised. So uh, it was pretty nice. Uh, I I felt like I was over engineering it, but then at the in in the end, it worked out exactly like I expected. So I think it was worth it. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about uh, the test framework in a tweet. Uh, I actually used that in a production thing. And um, and I know that you've, you've kind of frowned upon that a little bit as far as uh, probably would have been better just to, you know, use like either PHP built-in tools or uh, just, just suck it up and use PHP unit. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I tried to uh, do what I could with the, uh, the whole idea that they wanted to, minimal dependencies. Uh, I wanted to make sure that the code ran as it was. And so, yeah, I ended up implementing some of your suggestions for using like these cert tools, uh, made the whole test suite a lot easier. So um, like I've, I've never used PHP's assert in any way. And um, I had, I didn't realize there was a handler that you could write for that. And that totally made a, a huge difference in the mm. way the output works. So that was pretty awesome. Yeah. It was just about the, the test framework and a tweet thing is it's kind of cool. It's just if things do fail, it doesn't provide you with any feedback at all, and that's quite an important part of testing. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Is that the only reason I, I mentioned it? Yeah, yeah, no, and and that makes sense. And you know, and that is one of the problems that I've seen with it. Is like, sure, it, it's green or it's red, and now what? Um, so yeah. adding the the assert to the mix definitely helped a little bit. So um, it, it gave me some better debugging tools. So yeah, that was my first Gun.io experience. It was pretty awesome. I've, I've, I've been hooked up with them for almost two years. 
and I get emails probably once a day or so with new jobs and not all of them are super relevant to my experience. Uh, but I decided to jump on a few this last time and I finally got hooked up with someone that, that worked really well. So, um, they were really great to work with too. And okay. yeah, it was, it was a so, really good experience. Let me just get this clear. Cause there were a couple of these things and, or I know there were at least a couple that you've used recently. Gun.io, mm-hmm. Gun.io is, um, more for projects, right? Yes. Cause have you been doing some work with code mentor? Yeah, so Code Mentor um, is another thing that I've been doing, and that's more um, like on-demand uh, pair programming, on-demand help, on on-demand. I need to do this sort of thing, um, yep. and I can't get it to work. Um, and so, yeah, I've been doing a lot with that as well. And it it is different. Uh, Gun.io is more job posting oriented, yep. okay. And so they 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 share with their their network these job posts. And if you say you're interested, uh, they look at the, the job and they look at the people saying that they're interested and then they manually pair up people. Um, so in that sense, that's a, a lot more like air pair as well. Air pair, um, seems to be more manual. They actually pair the people up as opposed to there being like a marketplace really. Yeah. Um, and Co- code mentor is, is, um, is a little less hands-on, I think. Uh, that lets they you can look for your mentors and contact them directly. So I've I've been getting a lot of uh, people just saying, "Hey, can you help me with this?" And right. I don't know what the the men, the, the uh, apprentice side of that app looks like because every once in a while I get stuff that's totally not related at all to what I should, okay. <laughs> I have myself signed up for, and uh, and it's usually people who need something urgently. <laughs> it's like they really need help with something right now, and I'm like. I have no, nope, <laughs> not even going to touch that. Uh, I, I got contacted last night by someone who uh, said, um, in as many words, I need to draw a line. I need to click on this. I need to click a point on my screen and click another point on my screen and have a line drawn between the two. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, okay, um, I don't think I can help you with that. If I, If this is a JavaScript thing, maybe. You know, I can I can point you at some tutorials, and it, by the end of the conversation, they actually needed to have like a an executable that would be run that you could draw on your screen somehow. Mm-hmm. So, and I still wasn't even really sure what they what they needed, but so yeah, like Code Mentor is sort of all over the place. Like they they can come at you with pretty much anything. But I've had pretty good experience with that. I've done probably two or three of those in the last month that have worked out pretty well. Um, there's a, I think I have it set up that the first 15 minutes is free and some people get done within that 15 minutes and that's a bit, then other people, you know, maybe take a half hour, 45 minutes to, to work through something and then they can move on and do their thing. And, you know, I, I think, I think it could be really helpful even for me. Like if I, um, you know, sometimes you get stuck on something where you, you can Google all you want, but it's not helping you answer your question. Whereas someone who can look over your shoulder and give you that second set of eyes to say, yeah, this is what's, what's going on here. This is why you're seeing that problem. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's a really cool, valuable service. And, um, I don't know. I, I'm enjoying being a part of that network right now. So cool. Yeah. Um, I have a, another client that I've been working with and, uh, it's actually gonna be my third big Laravel app that I've been working on. And it's pretty massive. It's uh, it's kind of it's it's way more work than I think we initially thought it was going to be. The, the intricacies of the way that the data works together, uh, the data that has to be there at all, uh, the UI is actually pretty complicated. Um, so I've, I've been 
spending a lot of time just modeling the database on that one and making sure that I understand what's going on. And I I found myself liking uh, whiteboard tools, like just like actually walking up to a physical whiteboard and yep. <laughs> doing things that way. And I've been trying to get that translated to digital form so that it's easier to manage. And I'm still I still think that that technology is just not there. I haven't found anything that works really well for me. Um, there was uh, the there was the online tool for the um, uh, web sequence diagram dot com or mm. websequencediagram.org and I, w- I really wanted something like that where i could take a simple ascii formatted um output and just say i want to make it and draw it and make it you know route it prettily i don't want to care about that um and actually uh talked to people on twitter about it and i heard about uh, uml.me yuml.me i was recommended by uh jeremy limblum and that that was pretty close to what I was looking for, except I found that its automatic routing wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> it uh, it's it did straight lines, it did some curved lines, and you know it, it organized it in a way that wasn't intuitive at all. So I I realized that even automatic tools like that aren't really going to be what I'm looking for. Mm. Um, I also got some other recommendations. Uh, um, I actually went specifically to uh, Amy Stefan and asked her uh, for her input. I know that she does a lot of data work, uh, data modeling things, and she recommended two tools, and one of them is a little outside of my budget right now. It's a NaviCat modeler, or NaviCat data modeler, and I've I've been pretty impressed with uh, the NaviCat stuff that I've used in the past, so I'd like to do that. Uh, it's just that you know, resources are kind of tight right now, so I can't can't really afford to just buy some software to try it out. Um, I think they might have a trial, but Anyway, so she recommended that. Uh, she also recommended uh, MySQL Workbench, mm-hmm. which I gave that a try. And wow, that software's complicated. Like, <laughs> have you used it before? I think I have, but it, it it's a distant memory. Yeah, I, I think that it's uh, it's sort of like Audacity is compared to some of the other nicer tools, where it's just it's the simplest possible application <laughs> that like it's got all like it's the the developer yeah. UI experience where like yeah, it buttons everywhere and yeah so uh, so I tried that out uh, I think they have the the reverse engineering option that you can click and point at a database and then it creates everything for you and it drew lines it didn't do any pretty routing like lines overlap like the same line will go over top of each other for a little while yeah <laughs> and so you have to actually like hover over the line to see where they're going and um so I, I wasn't terribly impressed with that but you know it was free so i'm just gonna stick to doing whiteboard things for now i think because i, I don't know I'd, I'd rather take a picture of a whiteboard with things organized in a clear and concise manner than trying mm-hmm. to make it work with some other tool that makes things look complicated yeah but but that was pretty fun. So, and it also turned out that uh, both Amy and Brian Fenton have done work with um, schools, um, uh, like modeling uh, school and education domain things. So, okay. uh, you know, I I took a little screenshot of the diagram that I had for uh, like the the part of the project that didn't really have any secret sauce in it, and was shared that. So, I want to how can I diagram this? What can diagram this for me? So they looked at that and they were immediately like saying, well, you know, how like they were, they started digging into the model. <laughs> They're like, well, can, can this belong to that? And does it really make sense for that to not be associated with this? And uh, so it was kind of fun to, to go back and forth on that with people. And I was like, oh, wow, you guys, you're actually in this domain, which is pretty awesome. Um, 
so yeah, that was that was kind of fun. So I, I I've been having fun with that project, um, but they have they have a timeline that's pretty pretty aggressive. They want it to be ready to roll out for September uh, when school starts. So uh, I got to keep keep uh, I got to keep my focus on that to make sure that uh, I don't uh, get get too far behind on that project. Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, yeah, uh, and the. Uh, Actually, going back to the the time thing that you mentioned, I wanted to mention a project a friend of mine has. Uh, he's actually one of our listeners. It's uh, Andrew Shell has a unixtime.geekity.com, and it's a little tool that he's written to help uh, deal with time zone issues, time time and time zone issues. Uh, it lets you deal directly with uh, PHP's date format things, so that you can just paste in times to see what, how they relate and what they look like GMT versus non GMT. Uh, so right. if anyone's looking for a, a cool online utility for handling times, uh, you can check out uh, unixtime.geekity.com, G-E-E-K-I-T-Y. And uh, that's actually the person who um, uh, I was working with before with the tasks and the time things, uh, which is something that I worked on. They had me come in to help them out a couple of, couple of weeks ago with some performance issues. And um, the, the, the fix for that, the, long, the, the long-term fix for that, not the long term. the The final fix was um, uh, doing the uh, doctrine flush, not as often, because <laughs> right. we had to we had to do um, our, the fix was because it was flushing all the time. We had to clear because it was just continually uh, taking longer and longer time every time through the loop uh, because it had to check all of the objects that had already passed in the past. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we ended up fixing a. a relatively big um, performance problem uh, with with what what turned out to be like a one-line code change uh, just yeah. basically adding doctrine clear at, at the at the right point so was, it was kind of nice to see that that and it was like a very clear visual thing that every night between uh, I think it was uh, every night between 10 p.m and 4 a.m the CPU went from basically zero percent to 100 percent solid the whole night um and it, it wasn't actually solid but it was, i mean it was very near there was yeah. a couple little pe- valleys in there but um and afterwards you couldn't even tell like mid- midnight came around and the cpu usage looked just like it did the rest of the day so um, awesome that was, that was kind of a cool little 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 reminder that the sometimes you know you know we, we were looking at bigger ways to fix that and as we kept going to these big solutions we we're like well let's just look at this let's look at this we went all the way back down to to basically just a one-line code change it didn't require sharding it didn't require any sort of you know massive rewrite to uh, change how things are done um so it was, it was kind of cool and uh the 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 way that we really found that was with um blackfire uh, so I, i've used blackfire now to help uh, do performance uh, profiling have you used Blackfire yet? No, still not used it. Uh, it's on my list of things to do. Um, one of the nice things about the sort of um, using the cloud now for our production stuff means that I can spin up server instances. Uh, so I'd like to spin up a couple of instances and have Blackfire installed on them, then add them to the production uh, pool so I can have a, at least one server doing uh, prefer profiling in production. It's just on my list of things to do, but yeah, I'd like to uh, to get cracking with that. Cool. Uh, it didn't work exactly like I thought it was going to. Okay. It um and and maybe it works differently if you're working it from the website. Uh, we we were able to uh, 
we were actually running it from like a cron job. Um, and the, um, there, there's like five, I think there's five to 10 slots and you, every run goes to a slot. So it's not like you can like, and maybe, maybe this is expected for people who've used profilers like this before, but basically you couldn't have like a thousand runs and then go look at the, the processing profile. For no. them. Yeah. You'd only see the last one <laughs> or the, the last process that executed. That's all, the, all you'd ever see. Yeah. No, I think that's, that is different. Uh, that's, that's something unique to Blackfire, I think, at the minute. I'm not sure mm-hmm. if it's... Is that a constraint of the pricing plan you're on? I don't think so. Um, is that, it, what, I mean, is that how it works for everyone? What, what was that? Is that how it works for everyone? I believe so. I mean, right. I think you might... I mean, okay, so the, the pricing plans might let you have multiple, like, more um, slots, but every run goes to a slot. Like, when you run the profiler, you have to tell it which slot it goes to. Yeah. So and and it only has one record per slot. So, I mean, if if you have you know ten web servers, you could have each one go to a different slot, but you're only going to see the most recent run. And if you have thousands of runs, it's going to be like a constant moving target. I don't know. I don't even know how that works. Like I don't know how Blackfire would do that because you wouldn't see like a history at that slot. You would just see that slot and its performance. So, yeah, I don't know. I I. I uh, I would have to try it out from from a web perspective because I wasn't sure how that would work. And I, and remember thinking that Andrew thought that was interesting as well. That it wasn't what he expected either. Uh, and may, maybe I'm wrong on that. I, I should talk to him about that again. But when he looked at it, you know, we both just thought we could turn the profiler on overnight and and then review a bunch of information the next day. But that wasn't really how it worked. You yeah. Could only see, yeah. Yeah. So you were thinking a bit more like uh, XHProf or. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe a uh, uh, Tideways, which is uh, from the Kafu uh, folk, mm-hmm. uh, Benjamin mm-hmm. Ebley and Tobias, um, something or other, because uh, they have a sort of a, a profile that's probably competitor to Blackfire, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that's in the spirit of you can, you'd probably be turning the profiler on in your app and saying sample, you know, one in every hundred requests or something, yeah, and you know, you'll have that constant history, I think, but I might be wrong. Yeah, and, and I don't know. Like I said, I, I, I've, I've, my experience with Blackfire at this point has just been this one command line job, basically that we ran, that we had to specify specifically which one it would go to, and every time I ran that job, it re- would replace the information yeah. that was up there. So, I, yeah, I, I think just, it's. Uh, I'm know. just looking at the docs. I think it is specifically, you know, on demand. Okay. But yeah, it was still pretty. Uh, it was still interesting to uh, see that, and it worked pretty well. Worked pretty seamlessly, um, and it was really obvious as soon as I ran it that all of the time was being spent in Doctrine, and didn't have anything to do with our code. Like our code didn't even register <laughs> as far every, as every, every Doctrine app ever. Yeah, yeah. So it was fun. Um, yeah. So I don't think I have a whole lot else on the the work side of things. I, th- I think I hinted at the last episode that I have something else in the works uh, that I'm not going to be doing the consulting stuff as much. Um, I'm going to be spinning up uh, working with money.com in July. I think we're, we're launching on July 1st. So uh, we'll see how that, uh, how that plays out. I'll hopefully have more information as, as it goes, but yeah, I think we're, we're planning on launching July 1st. And at that point, I'm going to start transitioning to working on that project uh, two days, two days a week. 
and uh, just wrap that up uh, through the end of the year. So yeah, awesome. I, I hope. Yeah, I hope to get more information to people over yeah. time. When, but when you say launching, you kind of like me coming out of stealth mode, right? So yeah, anna- so announcing. Yeah, so if you go to money.com, M-O-N-I-I.com, uh, it has a little timer, countdown timer thing. So we're going right. to launch the page um, so that people know uh, more about what we're working on. Uh, they're going to list the team so that people know uh, who, who's on the team and kind of what our goals are. So yeah, so, yeah cool. uh, I'm going to save more information until after that's actually online. But that's, that's kind of what I'm gearing up for. I have a, a bunch of commitments that I have right now that... Um, I need to stay focused on, but I am going to start uh, spending more and more time on that uh, as as the year goes on. So yeah, yeah, it sounds exciting, man. I mean, I've uh, we've discussed bits and bobs here and there, but privately, haven't we? And uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm excited for you. It's going to be cool. Cool. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I it's it's good to have uh, uh, feedback like that, just so that I know that that it's not uh, way out there and something I shouldn't be doing because it's it's kind of scary to to transition from you know, what I've been doing to something different. And, uh, I, I will admit that I have some, some doubt every once in a while that it's the right thing to do. Um, but it's good to get some good feedback and, and hear from other people that, you know, it's, it is exciting. It is a cool thing. That, so, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's, I think that's all I have for actual work stuff, which is a lot. I know I've been, I feel like I've been talking for most of this 45 minutes so far. <laughs> Yeah, well, I was uh, I was unprepared, wasn't I? So uh, <laughs> I've got a couple of things I could talk about. The random things. Uh, are we are we up to that point in the podcast? Yeah, we can do that. I, I think a bunch of the stuff that I the other stuff that I have written down could all be considered random things. So yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up was um, a tweet by um, a chap called Max Howell, and uh, he uh, he wrote Homebrew, um, which I assume most familiar uh, most listeners will be familiar with. It's um, I think it's the, it's the missing package manager for for macOS. Uh, so you can you know brew, install, and some package that you would like to have available. And uh, he tweeted, and he, he was a bit annoyed when he tweeted this uh, clearly. But he tweeted um, Google with a colon to suggest that this is what Google was saying to him. Ninety percent of our engineers use the software you wrote with, in reference to Homebrew, but you can't invert a binary tree on a whiteboard. So f off. Uh, and I mean, this was a genuine thing that Google, I don't think they use those exact words, but he'd been to an interview for an iOS position at Google and he'd been asked to do some something on a whiteboard. He'd been asked to invert a binary tree. I, I personally wouldn't know where to start inverting a binary tree. Uh, I'm pretty sure most iOS apps don't require that kind of work. And he clearly knows what he's doing. You know, he uses a like you say a piece of software that 90% of Google engineers use and he was a bit bit annoyed about that and uh, I just wondered what your thoughts were on this sort of that culture of um engineering uh onboard well, not onboarding is it it's engineering recruitment in terms of here's a whiteboard explain this to me or here's a whiteboard explain this or solve this puzzle what do you feel about that kind of thing so i ran into a similar thing not long ago, actually, I tried to get involved in um, TopTal.com, and their big claim to fame is they only work with the top three percent. And you know, a lot of people like when I've I've mentioned this in the past, they've said, "Well, what does that mean?" Well, I think I know what that means now. <laughs> it's, uh, I have a better idea of what that means, and it's um, it's the top three percent of the people who actually bother to apply, and their filtering process is actually 
pretty similar to Google's in that respect. And the the questions that they gave me as a quote back end developer, um, I didn't feel were super appropriate. Uh, they, it wasn't necessarily a binary tree, but they gave me three, three problems. Um, and I, I'm a little embarrassed to say that I got 0%. I, yeah. I solved one of them, uh, but only in the most simple case. And so I didn't get any credit for that one. So they had, they had a whole s- test suite that they were going to send against the algorithm that you wrote and you had to get, you know, far enough along and, they they provided one simple data set that you could run it against, but they said, you know, make sure that you account for, um, you know, large numbers, small numbers, out of range things, all these other things. And I had no idea what they were going to send at it. So I still don't know what they actually sent at it. And yeah, I I failed it. I failed it miserably as much as I would have failed a binary tree inversion on a whiteboard. Um, yeah. And I don't think that the type of people who like the type of people who would get these questions right might be excellent engineers. Um, but I don't know who they are and I don't know. Like, I feel like it's testing a very specific type of person (laughs) or a very specific type of, uh, education level slash closeness to education. Um, like there was a time where I was actually doing some CS things in school where I might have a better grasp on big O notation as far as both storage and and runtime. Like I, I didn't even really consider what these things mean anymore. I don't like I don't use them very often, and maybe that's a sign that that I'm not doing things the most efficient way possible. But I also get a lot of things done, and there's like a lot of problems that you can solve without knowing exactly how to write this algorithm so that it's perfect or does things in a certain way in a very specific way it's like if it becomes a problem then you can i can go fix it like if i find out that something's a problem i'll i'll find it and i'll go fix it but i don't really aim to do that from the beginning at least not on the algorithm side yeah yeah like like i'll i'll do that with models but i don't necessarily do that with the code (laughs) yeah i mean i my feelings are that um I, 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 it's been, I'm like you, when I was at school, I, I learned about that kind of thing. And every now and then I actually sort of learned something new now and realized that I did actually learn some of this stuff at school or at university. And, but it's been so long since then. And I just haven't used it in my career since then. Um, you know, I spent what three years at university, learned quite a lot of things, but there is so many of those things that I haven't used in my 12 years as a successful, in what I consider a fairly successful career. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that I do have going for me that if I do need to quickly come up and learn about that stuff, I can do, but I can't do it off the top of my head in front of people on a whiteboard. You know, yeah, I I feel like despite not knowing it now, if you give me half an hour, an hour to sit down with Wikipedia or a few web pages or a tutorial to understand something, I will grasp it fairly quickly, but I just don't have that. I just don't do enough of that kind of thing to, you know, to just be able to pull that kind of thing out of my hat. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have no idea where to start inverting a binary tree. Honestly, <laughs> no idea. Yeah, I have a, a I have a loose understanding of what a binary tree is. I don't, I don't even know there are different types of tree data structures, and I don't know any of the others. So, 
I'd be pretty screwed if I went for an interview and they asked me to do that kind of thing. As yeah. such, I probably won't be going for any kind of interviews <laughs> where I know well, they'll be asking for that kind of thing. Yeah, it's it's interesting you say that because over the last, I don't know, five five to ten years, I pretty regularly get Google recruiters emailing me, asking yeah. me if I'd like to go in and interview. And I'm almost always at a at a point in my consulting career that I'm not ready to do that yet. That I'm, I'm like, wow, that that could be interesting, but you know, I'm 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 in the middle of a big project, or I have big projects on the horizon, or I'm really super happy with what I'm doing because I happen to be out of town for three months, and that's awesome because no one tells me I can't, <laughs> you know, and um, yeah, so I've always I've always told them no, and now I'm pretty sure that I don't want to. Like if if now that I've had this experience with TopTel, now that I see what these sorts of places might be looking for I, I don't really I think it'd be a waste of time and I really feel like I really like I, I felt like I spent an hour so I had an hour to do these things and I could use mm. the internet if I wanted to but I basically had an hour to figure out three different tasks all were completely different all were heavy on the algorithm side of things and I felt like I wasted an hour I, I wasted an hour of my time I wasted you know, half an hour talking to the person on the pre-screening interview. So like if, if you're going to give those types of tests and that's what you're going to like, like filter people out based on, I wish I knew that up front. Like, I feel like I should ask people from now on, <laughs> are you going to give me an algorithm test? Because I'm going to fail it. And then yeah. I'm going to be like, why am I bothering interviewing for any jobs? <laughs> it makes me feel really bad. And, um, and it, I, I know that it shouldn't because like, like, like you like we just don't have these skills you know at the top of our head right now it's like it's not what we do we haven't needed it for like you know 10 15 20 years like, I, I shouldn't feel bad about this but it does and it does make me feel bad <laughs> yeah well i mean it's actually leading on from that was um i think erica heidi tweeted about probably about an hour ago about sort of that whole thing of like feeling bad when you when you don't feel like you can keep up with modern technologies and things mm-hmm and I actually tweeted back about that. Um, the, an article we discussed a couple of weeks, uh, a couple of episodes ago, the choosing boring technology thing, because that kind of, yeah. you know, does make me feel better about this kind of thing. Um, the bottom line is that I'm still producing value for my employer and for our customers. And, you know, if I don't know how to invert binary tree, it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. I can still make money. I can still provide value. So, yeah, I don't, I don't feel too bad about it. Yeah. Well, there was a, another article that was re- another post that was passed around yesterday, I think, uh, about the person who's leaving the tech industry or isn't going to get a tech job again. And um, someone pointed out that that was the person who had written the uh, PHP is a fractal of bad design. Yeah. Um, what, what did you think about that article? Not not the PHP is a fractal of bad design, but I didn't read it. I I sort, of, I sort of read the the top and it kind of sounded like the guy was a bit down and burnt mm. out and um and the, I understand it happens but I just didn't really want to read it because I just felt like it would have a negative <laughs> impact on me <laughs> you know what I mean I just yeah uh, yeah the guy's got problems I don't really want to know I, that guy hasn't done anything for my career in terms of uh, PHP yeah. as of you know that article pretty mm-hmm. much slating the uh, the tool we use to get most of our work done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think I owed him my uh, any sympathy, uh, so <laughs> I, I just didn't bother reading it. Uh, 
So yeah, I think the thing is, uh, I think we pretty much like didn't he actually say that he was going to try and do some of his own projects and stuff. So he's not actually getting out of the industry proper. He's just not going to work for anybody else anymore, right? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it was interesting because it sort of seemed like it was a, a mixed message. Um, it it on one hand it sort of sounded like he was just getting out entirely, and then on the other hand he's like, well, I'm not actually leaving computers and not leaving programming <laughs> just not going to work for anybody else um, so it did sort of feel like it switched halfway through the article and it wasn't so much about the tech industry as much as the um, careers and the way that you know startup culture is and um, so yeah it seemed like the the message wasn't exactly like it was almost like a link baity title, I guess, to get you yeah. to read it for for the for a different reason. So, the thing um, is, uh, not all companies are the same. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure he was a quite a big company he was working for, startup or not. It was a big startup. Yeah, um, so it looked like looked like he was working for Yelp. Yeah, I, I think, think they're quite so. big, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Well, they're big. They're big over here, anyway. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of people or a lot of Yelp stuff over here, but I don't know if it's as big as other other countries yet. Mm. I mean, that doesn't really matter too much, does it? I mean, yeah. the, the States is a huge market. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's working for big companies like that and there's working for smaller companies. Um, mm-hmm. Working for yourself isn't always sunshine and rainbows, <laughs> as uh, I'm sure you can attest to. So, yeah, I mean, good luck to him, but... Yeah, I I think that was one of the, the, the top... One of the first few comments was <laughs> someone had said... Uh, if if you think that working for yourself isn't a job, you're in for a big surprise. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I th- I think that I think it is tempting to to look at people who are off on their own and and I think we've talked about this a lot because we we talk about uh, people talking about uh, like the info products and you know making you know making your own life, making your own products, making your own name for yourself, and basically not having to work for anybody. That's actually a, a lot of work. And the people selling those info products, their job is to make it look enticing to you so that you give them money to learn how to do what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, we've talked about that paradox. Absolutely. A, a lot of the those people are selling... I, it, if it was so easy, they'd be carrying on doing it themselves rather than teaching other people how to do it. That, right. That's the way I see it. Um, yeah. And, and I think that it... To, to a certain extent, I think that information is useful because it does help people realize that they don't have to stay in the job if they don't want to. Um, but I do think that a lot of times it ends up being painted as this beautiful picture that it's going to be awesome. All you have to do is quit your job and be your own boss. And they don't really tell you that you're still, uh, you are your own boss and you still have to pay bills and things will go poorly sometimes <laughs> like they don't ever talk about that part of it and um that that was one of the nice things that i i took away from one of luke stokes talks i think we mentioned this too um he talked about what it was like to start foxy card and what what how difficult that was to to try and get that bootstrapped while he had his own job uh, like he had a full-time job and he was doing that on the side and yeah i mean I, I think that people could do to talk about that a little bit more that it's not always awesome to be on your own sometimes it could be really really hard um so yeah that, that article was interesting and I, I didn't uh someone didn't i didn't know that that person had done the php of fractal bad design article until after i had read it and it didn't really change my opinion of it a whole lot 
Um, but it was interesting to to see the people see people talking about it as uh, the whole burnout idea. Um, I think I think uh, Code Rabbi pointed out burnout.io is mm. a a place to go if you're experiencing similar thoughts. So I mean, this this person's ideas weren't new. I mean, it's it's basically being overworked and underappreciated is is how he felt. Like if if I had to like take the most broad generalization. Yeah. Like that's, I think that's what this person felt like. And, um, it is easy to get burned out if you're doing that, but it's also easy to get burned out if you're really excited about something and you just never get anywhere. So yeah. I don't know it, if anyone else is feeling like that, I, I would say check out burnout.io. It looked like it could be a, a useful tool or resource for people who are struggling right now. Um, other articles, um, I saw a tweet that I'm not going to go into too much detail. It's, um, it was a tweet by Elizabeth uh, Hendrickson, and it was, I prefer recovery over perfection, predictability over commitment, safety nets over change control, and collaboration over handoffs. Um, and I thought it was a really interesting idea, and, and uh, apparently a bunch of other people did as well. And so someone tweeted at her and said, hey, I'd like to learn more about that. So she wrote a whole article on it, which I haven't actually been able to read it in its entirety, but it looks like she broke down these ideas pretty clearly. And I don't know, I, I feel like it's something I'd like to get back to because I, a lot of, it sounds like it makes sense. Like some of the ideas sound uh, like, I, like I, I don't know if I focus on the right things all the time. Yeah, no, I, I liked that. I saw the tweets as well, and uh, mm-hmm. I liked it. Uh, like I say, I'm similar to you. I didn't follow up and read the article when it got posted. Mm-hmm. It's uh, some buried somewhere in my Twitter favorites <laughs> for me to uh, revisit at some point. Yeah. So anyway, if anyone's interested in in following up on that, we'll have that in the show notes. Uh, if, if I get a chance to read it in more detail, and if I have anything to comment on, maybe I'll bring it up on the next episode. But it is something that that I've had on my list for like four weeks now um to to talk about just because uh it resonated with me so um as far as cool projects uh i've seen a couple of cool projects come out over the last uh last couple of weeks or months or so um dustin wheeler uh ported uh one of those weird javascript funny character things uh zalgo.us have you seen have you seen those with the people with the twitter characters that twitter names that go like way out of out of the All range right, yep. of the normal tweets okay. um or, and I, I have no idea what it is or how it works but uh there's a, now a php port that you can use to create these these strings so um it's uh, zalgo.us and that's dustin wheeler it's kind of a cool little thing <coughs> um yeah I, I actually talked about uml.me already i was going to talk about this a little later in the, the episode so um, other f- fun things that have happened. Um, uh, PSR seven is a thing. We've been mm-hmm. leading up to that over the last couple of episodes um, as it's been going through its its workflow, but it's now a thing. Yeah, interesting. Um, it's been nice to see how the community sort of uh, adopting it and things. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think um, the uh, the biggest surprise to me was that Symphony managed to build a Symphony bridge within. I don't know, was it seven days of it being launched? Uh, or with within seven days of it being accepted and with uh, just in time for Symphony 2.7's release. So yeah. Sy- Symphony has a bridge for PSR 7 now, which is 
surprising. I was surprised that they jumped on it that hard, and that's pretty awesome. I'm pretty excited about that. Doesn't doesn't surprise me that much. I mean, really? I said that I was like, I don't. It's not like they've adopted it. Do mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They've put a bridge in. Yeah. So it converts to and fro for you. Um, it's not like HTTP Foundation is now going to implement the standard. Right. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, it's not. I I I don't know. It's not some. I can't see myself using it anytime soon. But uh, it's nice to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, have you any idea what kind of thing you'd be looking to use it for? Um, within well, the scope of a Symphony app is what I'm within the scope of a Symphony app. No, not so much. Um, unless some really great and interesting uh, PSR seven based middleware come out. Um, you know, as far you know, we've we've talked a lot about you know controllers as services and writing framework agnostic code. Um. I can see a use case for eventually wanting to write controllers such that they uh, receive uh, a PSR7 request instead of a Symphony request just so that you can move between any framework if you wanted to. Uh, but we've also talked a lot about controllers being like the least important part of the application, really. It's on the edge, yeah. and how much code is there really in your controller? So yeah. I don't know. It, it'll be interesting to see what kind. Of, I, I'm more interested in seeing the tools that that come up around it. Um, yeah, I'm, I I don't really know what's going to happen with Stack, um, but I think that this could be uh, this could have a huge impact on Stack one way or another. Well, it's quite um, interesting um, to me. It, it feels like I think Stack will go away now, but I think mm-hmm. it's but kind of it's unfairly going to go away because, I mean, basically, HTTP Foundation, I'm sorry to say it, but HTTP Foundation was good enough. Mm-hmm. It's just nobody wanted the Symfony brand on it. Yeah. Because, I mean, what you just said, oh, you can write controllers that accept a PSR response yeah, request, right? Mm-hmm. Well, we don't need that now because my controllers that accept a Symfony request and have been doing for so long. There's a bridge for the PSR, so I can now just I can quite easily write a wrapper and take those anywhere I go. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, uh, no, and um, yeah, and and that's that's kind of where I've been struggling with the future of Stack. I don't know what is what's going to happen. I, uh, there is definitely a group of people who would like to see Stack go forward, and because they have invested in it, but I don't really see. I don't. I. I don't see it evolving much from where it is um, because it is a symphony thing and it's always going to be a symphony thing unless we as stack decide to uh, release uh, some sort of interface that's a PSR seven version of HTTP kernel interface. Um, I just don't see that. I don't, I don't see it evolving unless that happens. And I don't know if I'm ready to do that personally for the project. I don't, I mean, I can't see it. I just, like I say, I think we've got PSR 7 now. Uh, mm-hmm. There are things I don't particularly like about it, but at least it's something and we can go forward. Yeah. No. Yeah, and, and there's still um, there's still people uh, discussing or being upset with certain inter- certain aspects of it. I know that Benjamin Averly has been pretty adamant about the fact that we did it wrong, Fig did it wrong, because we didn't introduce either a client interface or a basically the equivalent of an HB kernel interface. Because we didn't do that, then PSR7 really was pointless. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that, but 
I do see I do see that because I see people arguing and discussing how best to implement middleware, for example. Um, there's the connect style middleware, there's the closure ring style middleware that uh, Michael Dowling was talking about. Um, it, there was a Twitter exchange uh, late last night um, about why why is the uh, why is the response being passed into um, the middleware and um, and and I guess there's multiple PSR7 middleware implementations right now that do that. Uh, the one that I know the bet most about is Strategility. That was um, the uh, Fly Fly Connect or Fly. I can't remember what its old name was, but it was basically the reference implementation that Matthew Weirfini was was building, um, which has been rebranded now to Zen Strategility. Yeah. So, so that sort of middleware way of working is uh, based on Sensor Connect, right? Yep. So yeah. your middleware receives as the arguments to itself the request a response and the next middleware yeah. for it to call yep. in the same fashion yep and yeah i don't really like that response going in there um particularly because it's immutable it feels weird that you you're giving it a response but asking for a response back mm-hmm. if it was uh maybe a hash um it wouldn't be I, it feel a bit more natural, but mm-hmm. because it's an object and we're used to passing objects around by reference, uh, it feels weird. If you see what I mean. Yeah. So, so the way that we we discussed it last night, or the way that um, um, the way that uh, Michael uh, talked about it was that it was basically uh, a prototype, and Matthew sort of agreed that um, that it's idea, the idea of passing the response in. Um, in, in many ways is to make it so that the middleware itself doesn't have to be aware of uh, any implementation. So you can just modify the response and pass it back. But you're not really modifying it, you're creating a copy and passing it back. Um, yeah. so, so you could write a middleware, you could write your whole application and never have to be aware of any specific implementation of PSR7. You yeah. can only, you, you get a response, you can do whatever you want to with it and pass it back. So. Yeah, I definitely think it's convenient, but I don't think that's a particularly yeah. sort of sound argument just from an engineering point of view. Um, I think it's it's fair enough if mm-hmm. it's a, sort of a personal preference, but it's no different from right. injecting a factory as a dependency. Well, so so that was that was actually Michael's argument was that well, you could do the same thing with a factory, but but the factory then so at that point you're either you're still tying your the the factory itself would have to be tied to an implementation. Or you'd have to have an adapter. You right? probably have have don't have to tie yourself to an implementation, though. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you could have an interface for the factory. You could have the factory right. could just be a closure, and you say, "I'm accepting a closure." Right, but right, but but the the fact that you're passing a but the fact that you're passing a factory at all now becomes a part of the method signature. Sorry, so, I wasn't being probably wasn't being clear. Mm-hmm. I meant. Uh, that yeah. the factory could be a dependency yeah. of the object at construction time. So it becomes a collaborator in that sense. It's not a, a runtime argument. It would be a, the middleware already knows about the factory, and when it comes to handle the request, it will use that factory. Mm-hmm. If that Does does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the main takeaway is that there's, that I've come away with this is that there are multiple ways that this can be implemented and nobody's 
really landing on one that is this was for sure the way to go and for me this this makes it feel like it's a good thing that fig didn't try to do this <laughs> because we we wouldn't have psr7 right now we would still be arguing over the best way to do this um that doesn't mean that fig won't eventually have a middleware uh specification or proposal um and we might have one sooner rather than later i don't know um yeah so so i suppose uh what benjamin fears is that because we haven't standardized the middleware approach that we're going to end up with where we would have had, you know, everyone collaborating on middleware together. We might have two or three different fields mm-hmm. uh, or two or three different types of middleware. So we actually end up with a bunch of adapters right. again to go back and get us not quite back where we were at the beginning, but mm-hmm. not quite as far as we we might have been. Anyway, m- me having said all this, I don't particularly like that response being in there, but I'm happy to go with it if that's what everyone else wants to do. Right. And I think, yeah, and I think that's kind of the the point is that we don't know what's what people are going to like. And, and we're going to see these things crop up and that we can see if it makes sense to standardize on one or the other. Um, and, you know, maybe that'll hurt things in the long run because everyone's going to get fractured and then no one will ever want to use PSR7 because there's no point. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. But we... The, the things that have been looked at so far are the various styles of of middleware in other languages and in other frameworks within those languages. And it seems like there's maybe three or four styles. Um, and the, the one that Michael prefers is very similar to uh, the Connect style, except that it doesn't accept a response. That's the only difference between them. Yeah, which is... Uh... Yeah. Also, how Laravel is doing it at the minute, I think. Yeah, I think so. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, it's also possible that these will all, we'll be able to find a way to make them all work together. And so that, you know, if we, if, and this is something that I've actually been talking with Matthew about. He's he's brought it up a few times that uh, we want to have a, a resource that people can go to to say, these are the types of middlewares, these are the pros and cons, this is how you make them work together. So that basically, it doesn't matter anymore. And if, if we're doing, if we're, if we're following stacks lead and doing conventions over interfaces, um, then we can say that a middleware is a callable whose first argument is a request. And, you know, we can figure out all of the different possible options for the signatures for that method and, and call it good. And we'll just be done. Um, yep. So I, I, the only you know, the only wild cards then are Laravel with, you know, it's dynamic injection of dependencies based on whatever. Um, and I guess, you know, Symphony has controllers that are the same sort of, same sort of way as well. I mean, that, that would probably be the only thing that might be a little, little different. Um, but maybe, maybe we don't do that anymore. You know, maybe Laravel doesn't do that for the middlewares or maybe it doesn't do that for all of the middlewares. I don't know. But I, I don't, I don't see it as a big issue. I feel like, I feel like these are all things that are going to get solved. Um, as far as projects based on PSR7, um, I started um, early on, I started a, a cookies implementation. And um, after PSR7 was finalized, I, f- I finished that implementation. So um, that was one of the, the common criticisms or concerns of PSR7 was how do you deal with cookies? Because cookies weren't a first class thing in PSR7. 
Um, and this was sort of written as a prototype to say, well, you don't have to worry about it because, you know, you can find tools that interact with PSR7 um, and then that tool can be used, you know, in any project that's PSR7 compatible. So you don't have to worry about um, always doing it in a certain way. So, uh, so that's out. I also started working on a, an encrypted cookie implementation uh, to um, sort of show uh, PSR7 middleware. Uh, so it is a PSR7 middleware as far as Connect is concerned, or the Connect style is concerned. Um, so yeah, it, it's been it's been slowly coming out. There's been a lot of implementations started that I've seen kind of floating around. Um, Symphony having it uh, on board is pretty cool. Zend is clearly all in on PSR7. So I don't know. the The future could be very interesting if we if we look at this conversation again in a year. I'd be curious to see how much has changed. Like, is it fully adopted? Are people using it? Maybe we'll find all sorts of cool use cases for it that we hadn't thought about now. Maybe there'll be awesome new micro frameworks that are completely PSR7 driven that, <laughs> you know, uh, like maybe that will be the next cool thing is this this neat little system that you can build a PSR7 based application uh, easily and competes with Lumen and Silex and Slim. Who knows? Um, as far as Figland is concerned, uh, there's a new PSR on the table for um, bringing it into the system as as draft. It's the uh, PSR container um, PSR, and I, I believe that's the one you call array access PSR array access. Yeah, so I, I think the the sort of proposed interface has a it has an a get method, uh, which you know yeah, just I think screams so. I think that's to me sort of it is. array access. Um, and I've actually done this myself. Um, I have a small uh, migrations library called PHP MIG. Um, I made it to be very sort of put into any project you like. And um, I needed a container for some of the services within the library just to make it easier. Mm-hmm. But also to to allow uh, users to uh, have services available to their migrations so that when they're running migrations they could access the database or they could access something else, whatever it might be. I've already ha- I have some people use, who've used it to do migrations with APIs, so when you run migration it actually calls an API endpoint. So having a, a container available to the migrations themselves as a service locator was really useful. Uh, and originally I shipped a, a vended version of Pimple. I, I uh, decomposed Pimple into the library and uh, namespaced it and stuff. And that worked fine for a while, but um, I then had some people, I think someone from Sensio actually was going to use it with a Symphony project and wanted to use it with the full-blown container. And uh, he wondered yeah. about creating an interface and an adapter. And in the end, I just decided to ditch the Pimple and replace it with Array Access. Um he quickly wrote an adapter and off he went. Um, of course, the proposed interface there they're mentioning is, uh, doesn't have a write side, which array access does, which is unfortunate in a way. It depends which way you think about access. So uh, we, if you think of accesses and mutators, then we're thinking access is read-only, but not, not with uh, PHP's array access interface. It requires the has, get, set, and probably unset as well. Uh, so, But, I mean... it. I guess my point is that it's a very slimline interface, and uh, we and I don't think array access is necessarily something we could all agree on. But mm-hmm. sort of within the spirit of maybe we can't get a PSR, but really array access would probably do the trick most of the time. 
right yeah so so yeah i basically i can see that array access would be potentially an option but yeah it it does it it's not a perfect solution by any means um i don't know I, I i've been watching the whole thing from a distance and i'm i haven't really engaged and we we've talked about that a little bit too offline that i'm trying not to get involved in every little discussion um and i i've actually been pretty surprised by how forcefully larry's going after this as something that everyone should vote against um, I haven't really seen him campaign like that against something so hard, and it's a little it's a little unsettling. Um, and there, there are a couple other people who are pretty vocal about it as well. But it seems like Larry's done a taken lead on this <laughs> of making this not happen. Um, and and by not happen, it's not even letting it get in to be discussed. Um, and you know, I I can understand his arguments, but at the same time, when I look at the users of this interface, there's already, you know, a considerable amount of people implementing it. And it's a thing. <laughs> people are going to keep using it. Um, I, I've, I feel like, I don't know. It, it's, I, I've been a little discouraged by it. And um, partly because I've been, uh, been sort of uh, cheerleading uh, David to actually promote this and push this and, to see this kind of feedback come back, um, I don't know. It's 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 very negative. It's it's very negative across the board, and I I, I would I, I don't want to be I wouldn't want to be in his position to have to try and defend this at this point because I don't think I don't I don't know. Yeah, based on based on what I've seen, it's not really an argument you you're going to win or, yep. or it's worth getting involved in. People have made up their minds, made up the made up. Yeah, made decisions about how they feel. They see it, the idea is that this might encourage the use of the so-called anti-pattern service locator. Mm-hmm. Whereas I don't think that's really what people. It's not what it's for. The idea is that it, this might be two libraries that need to um, reach into the framework, and it does happen. Some libraries do need to do this, and. Um, yep. A container access interface would be a good way for that to happen. People might use Service Locator, but they probably use it anyway. Yeah. So the, this will not stop them. Yeah. So the big thing that comes to my mind is with Stack. Um, when when we built all of our Stack middlewares, like the the initial run of them, they all used Pimple, and they all still use Pimple, and they all and it's similar to your database migration or your uh, PHP MIG or whatever it is. Um, they all they all use stack or they all use pimple, uh, which means that as far as I'm as far as I know, they're all still stuck on Silex one, because they need pimple one. Um, you know, we talked a lot about wanting to be able to um not deal with that. Like we wanted to, we wanted like if we could pass in any uh container, that would be awesome, because otherwise we have to maintain a second set of uh, services just for each individual's um, stack middleware. And I think that's probably also part of the reason that Taylor decided to um, leave stack uh, with um, Laravel 5 because it became a pain to to manage those things. You need access to services inside middleware. And dependency injection is great if if you can get access to the, the container the right way, but otherwise you're, I mean, 
best option might be in some cases to get it out of a container. Um, and you know, maybe that is, that is exactly what people don't want people to do, but I don't see as big of a problem with a stack middleware getting, uh, one or two services out of a container versus having them injected into the, the class itself. I mean, it's not doing a lot. I don't see a big issue with that. And something like container interface would, would help with that. Um, yeah, and, uh, and not to mention the things that can mm-hmm. only be determined at runtime. You know, there are things, uh, you know, such as which controller mm-hmm. we're going to use needs to be known at runtime. Sometimes it's, I mean, we could inject them all, all controllers, but that's not really convenient for us. It's more right. convenient to grab what we need when we need it. Well, and sometimes there's performance considerations for that too. Like if there's certain dependencies that you don't want to get. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and not to mention the, the developer experience side of things. Uh, you know, you, yeah, for every time we need a, a lot of controls that can only be determined at runtime, we could inject them all manually, or we could r- write some sort of lo- you know focused locator, so you know a service locator that just does controllers or a factory. But I don't really want to, you know, it's I don't want to. Yeah, and this is why I don't get involved in those discussions. <laughs> or, or I talk privately with you about it, or on this podcast yeah. when no one can really talk back at me. Yeah. Speaking of which, there was there was another set of tweets that went out about frameworks. I, I think I think you were going to mention that one. I don't remember what the actual tweet that started that was. So I think this started with uh, Chris Hatches put a tweet out about um, he sees a lot of senior devs pushing back against the use of frameworks, um, but he. He rarely sees, or I think he was asking the question, uh, do they, does anybody sort of put anything out there, like, you know, conference talks, tutorials? Or, or implementations. About how to, you know, or, you know, or yeah, or fully bled, full, full-bled mm-hmm. implementations of how to, to not use a framework and how to build a project from scratch. Or, or, sorry, build a project using several components and this, that, and the other. And um, I think that sort of kicked off a discussion uh you know, the usual to and fro about frameworks, no frameworks, what it means to put together a bunch of packages, you know, is putting together a bunch of packages a framework? It's just your own framework? Who knows? I mean, it's kind of like a non-discussion for me. I mean, if you look at it from that point of view, you know, if you're not using somebody else's framework, you're creating your own. Now, my day job, I we we're based on Silex, but the amount of stuff we've put onto it and into it, and the amount of bits I've taken out of Silex and replaced, I've essentially created my own right. framework. I've added a doctrine on to it myself. I mean, I've added things like controls as services that I've contributed back to Silex. Mm-hmm. All these little things that actually take Silex and make it your own framework. So you're still using the framework. What difference does it make? It's complete non-issue to me. You're either using somebody else's framework with their opinions, their documentation, their conventions, or you're making your own out of components. I don't see much difference myself. Mm-hmm. Would I use... I mean, so I'm in the no-framework camp in my day job, but would I use a framework for another project? Absolutely. If Yeah. I, yeah. I, I So I, I look at, like, say, OpenCFP. And... I, I haven't looked at it in a while, but my, my, my initial impression was that there wasn't a framework used there. And it was completely built from scratch using all sorts of like off-the-shelf routers, off-the-shelf view layer. Um, and 
I don't know. I'd, I'd be curious to ask Chris how well that worked. Um, like for, from his experience, because in my mind, he built that without a framework. Um, so I, I don't know how much of his tweet had to do with his experiences along those lines of like, maybe, maybe that's been difficult for him. Maybe it's been hard to, to do, um, uh, build an application that way. I, I haven't built an application that way in a long time. Um, I've always built some, built off some base, uh, whether it be Silex or Symphony 2, Laravel, whatever. Um, but yeah, I haven't built something from scratch where I like took a, an off-the-shelf router and hooked it up to an off-the-shelf HTTP Foundation style, you know, uh, layer where you're doing the um, uh, representation of the super globals or whatever. I haven't done that, and I don't really want to. <laughs> like, I don't see the point of starting there. Just to, I mean, maybe just to prove a point, but. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe these people who are anti-framework, maybe they do that. Is that what they do? And I think that might be what Chris was getting at is how do you, like, if you aren't using any framework, what what are you doing? And maybe maybe it comes down to people's differences in opinion on what a framework is. I don't know. So I think my opinion of a framework is it's a bunch of code that somebody else has written. Mm-hmm. Someone else has made choices, and that's a really important thing. They've made choices. They have opinions. And they've bundled their choices and their opinions up into a package for you. They've documented it, you know. They've created a user base around it, a bit a community around it, if you like. They've there are hundreds of resources around it, and you get all of that, all of that convenience at the choice of, you know, you've probably missed out on a few personal decisions. There are lots of frameworks out there. I've used quite a few of them, and the most each of them probably. Mm-hmm does something that I don't particularly like or I prefer another way of doing it but you sacrifice that for all the other conveniences that you get and that's pretty much the bottom line for me you know build your own make all your own decisions don't get any of the benefits of using an off the shelf framework or use an off the shelf framework get some benefits but have to live with a few compromises mostly on you know based around your personal opinions and personal preferences I guess I think I think that's what I'm where I am I guess I'm on the fence you know I'll do both I'll happily go into a job doing either I think I can be just as effective in either so yeah again mm-hmm. I think it's a non-issue for me yeah I've I've looked at some what I would consider legacy applications like PHP level like individual PHP pages for individual pages. And I don't like those. <laughs> I like those, those I struggle with mightily. Um, I, uh, yeah, but beyond that, I think that it's, I'm a little more flexible these days, you know, whether it's a, you know, full, full, full framework place or some custom homegrown thing, it's not too bad, but, Go go much beyond having some sort of underlying architecture. <laughs> like if there isn't anything at all, um, I I would struggle with that. But otherwise, and I haven't really had a problem with anything anyone's thrown at me lately. It like like you're saying, like if it's a if it's a full Symfony two application, great. If it's uh some custom thing, so some custom model view controller s- situation, great. Uh, Laravel, I'm far more comfortable now than I was a couple of of weeks ago even um yeah I, I don't see what the big deal is and but some people are really passionate about it 
um like the there's the goes goes all the way from the extreme of you know people who are hardcore symphony devs or hardcore uh laravel people where that's all they'll ever do um all the way to the other side where it's where they're vehemently anti framework but but i don't know what that means <laughs> you know I, I just i just don't i don't I, I don't understand these big twitter discussions that happen around things that don't seem they matter all that much yeah I guess I'd, I'd just say again, you know, if you are putting together a bunch of packages and you are integrating them together, mm-hmm. you are creating a framework. That is what a framework is, a bunch of things, nowadays anyway, a bunch of components integrated together. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think you can sort of honestly say you are anti-framework if you are, you're doing this because you are, well, you know, you're, you're putting these things together. Or building you're, a framework. Yeah, building a framework. Yeah. Yeah, it, you know, I, I guess there's also cases where you you have, you know, simpler apps where maybe you don't need a framework, like like the the single PHP style pages that I was uh, talking about, really disliking. Uh, if if you look at the, the the apps that I've looked at, I mean, some of those had like, you know, three thousand lines of mixed PHP HTML code. That's the, that's the kind of stuff I don't like. But some people might have a simple app that only has to do a couple of things and and that might be appropriate so i don't know Uh, yeah i get that yeah um yeah i don't have a whole lot else um i don't know if did i mention uh did i mention i I mentioned ninja girls launch uh i don't think i mentioned that i finally finished the the foxy card integration um so if uh someone buys something now it actually updates on our system which was one of the things that was holding us off from putting the OSS art pieces up for sale, the originals, um, I, I sort of was uh, on principle against putting them on Etsy, <laughs> uh, just because I wanted to to have the uh, I wanted I wanted to actually deliver on my side of the 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 um, project and give her a full website. So uh, that's actually possible now. People can actually buy things on the website. And the originals, if you buy an original, it actually takes takes that offline. Or it makes it so that no one else can buy it. Um, there is a, a small race condition possible. If so, if two people put it in the cart at the same time, it, it will actually go through. And I wrote them about that and asked if there's any way to uh, solve that problem. And they said that uh, you can set an expiration time on cart items. Which would probably help part of part of that, but um, this so that they they have actually had people implement like a, a hold timer, so that if someone puts it in their cart, just the act action or the just the uh, action of putting it in the cart makes it no longer available for anybody else to buy it. Um, but I, I think in it like building something like that's way more like we, we don't have those catch race conditions yet. Um, um, yeah, but it just reminded me how complicated. Uh, selling, selling things can be online, and I'm I'm really glad that I decided to go with with Foxycart, even though we've had some issues figuring out the shipping thing. Um, I I, did, I don't know if we talked about that on on the the show yet, but uh, the shipping stuff right now uh, doesn't take shipping dimensions into account, so it does its live shipping rates based on uh, one foot by one foot by one foot box at whatever weight you set, um, and for us that's that's problematic because our stuff is very different than that you know we have uh shipping a a one foot by one foot by one foot box to to say france 
is is the price is way different if you have to ship a 18 by 24 piece of art uh, even though the, the the weight isn't that much the the size uh, matters a lot uh, so we've had we've had to do some compromises there but um, it, it's been it's been interesting working with with Beck on that um, you know she's my client in this case and it's it's hard to tell her it can, you know it it doesn't work that way and she's like well but on Etsy I could just say I'm like this is this is an Etsy we you, we don't it doesn't you know it's it's a really powerful shipping calculator but it has a couple of restrictions and one of them is it doesn't do weight it says um it's 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 interesting trying to uh look at these problems and i understand that behind the scenes this is probably a complex problem for them but from her perspective she's like i don't understand i put i just typed the dimensions in why isn't it using the dimensions because I, I you know i accept the dimensions and i pass them the dimensions but they're ignoring them now because of whatever reason so it's, it's been it's been a fun project talking with her about that and looking at these you know other tools and you know, it would take me a long time to write a shopping cart that accounted for all the edge cases that FoxyCart accounts for, but, you know, it, it saved me a lot of time. Yeah, absolutely. Sounds like it came good. Yeah, so I... I yeah, we've been we've been going here for a little while now, so... Yeah, we should sign off. Thanks, everyone. Cool. All right. Well, uh, I guess we can call this one a wrap. You've been listening to that podcast with Bo and Dave. You can find Bo on Twitter and Google Plus at Bo Simonson and Dave on Twitter at Dave Development. You can subscribe to this podcast and review it on iTunes. If you'd like to review us but don't feel like we've earned five stars, email us so that we can talk about your issues. You can also subscribe to this podcast with RSS from our website, thatpodcast.io. From our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter to get super secret extra content from Bo and Dave sent directly to your inbox. Like the music? You can thank Gorillo for allowing us to sample the track Dust Kingdom for our intro and outro. You can find Dust Kingdom and other tracks by Grillo at grillo.bandcamp.com, spelled G-R-I-L-L-O.